This week on the Backtable Podcast. So I think as a urology trainee or as a consultant, every day your patient's not smoking really counts. We heard previously that the day before is probably not beneficial. I think it is. There's a very nice trial that Rich and I commented recently. And if you stop at the median of a few days, you can actually improve gastrointestinal complications. So there are many stories behind smoking cessation and it's probably not beneficial, but it is actually always. So it's not that you cannot go to the toilet. If you stop smoking, actually it's better. So there's no harm for smoking cessation nearly. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Christian Fankhauser from Lucerne, Switzerland, and Rich Machulowitz from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Really excited to have you here, gentlemen. How are you guys doing today? Good, good, great to be here. Thank you so much for the invite. Thanks so much as well. Well, I, I'm thrilled about this episode. You know, I think uh, the work that you guys have been doing in smoking cessation is absolutely critical. I think it's one of those underappreciated things. And maybe I'll just start out with a confessional. Pretty rigorous and routine in terms of a smoking history for my bladder and kidney cancer patients. But for just about everybody else, their smoking history gets pre-populated in our EHR, and I may or may not look at it. If they tell me they smoke, I'll say, you really need to quit. And sometimes I'll actually say, I know this is a really stressful time in terms of your cancer diagnosis. So, you know, whatever we're going to do to help. And even worse, sometimes a BPA, a best practice alert pops up and sometimes I hit cancel. And it's, <laughs> and that's just kind of some of the things that I'm up to. I hate to admit it. First kind of reaction to that, Rich and Christian. Well, I think you're in good company. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I think those practices, uh, they may even go above and beyond what most urologists are doing. And, you know, I'd be lying if I said that my own deficiencies didn't motivate a little bit of my efforts in all of this, because, uh, you know, I certainly looked at my own practice as well and made the determination that I could probably be doing a lot more. I don't know. What, what do you think, Christian? How, how are things in Europe? Are, are, are people much better than uh, but us American urologists here? Unfortunately not. I think it's the same. It's also about incentives. If you schedule a patient for a cystectomy, your incentive is actually get the patient through the cystectomy without any complications. So I think you're highly motivated to do whatever it takes. And when it's just a BPA follow-up, probably your incentive is not that strong. I think this is a system level question. So who should be in charge in which situation? Probably it should not always be the urologist. Probably you should also have advanced nurse practitioners or so. But I think you need to think who is a charge for smoking cessation because it is really critical. It's probably the most effective intervention we have in medicine. Yeah, I think that's uh, the million dollar question. I couldn't agree more. You know, I think diet, exercise, and smoking kind of top the list. You know, if we spent a bit more time talking about our TA low-grade patient about how they shouldn't be obese and embark on a Mediterranean diet that may impact their overall longevity more so than anything doing from a cancer perspective. But let's let's just jump into it. You know, 101, talk a little bit about your kind of smoking intake. You know, never 
previous pack years, just a little bit about, you know, what you think is a adequate and appropriate smoking intake. I got to tell you, I think getting into those details about intensity and duration is, is already thinking about three steps deeper into, into what we should be doing. I would say that simply screening patients or asking whether they smoke or not is not happening as often as it should. And, you know, that, that's really where it all begins, in my opinion. You know, that's step one of, of all the NCCN guidelines, and it's certainly in step one in trying to figure out where patients are at, where you can meet them, and, and where to intervene. But I think opening things up with the simple question, do you smoke or have you smoked, and trying to phrase that in a non-judgmental phrase, which is sometimes difficult, especially when you've just spent the last 10, 20, 30 minutes explaining to a patient their bladder cancer and, and what some of those etiologies may have been. But I think opening up with that and trying to establish rapport, uh, using that as kind of like a teachable moment is a great option. And there are some other kind of validated questionnaires that you can consider using as a framework for some of what you ultimately ask. I think, as Christian mentioned earlier, approaching this from a systems level issue is, is a really great idea also, because you know it may not be critical for the urologist to be detailing or documenting or collecting all of this information beyond just do you smoke as, as kind of an opening to that brief intervention or, or some of that counseling, but approaching this from a system level issue by integrating some of this into a pre-visit questionnaire through an electronic survey or using some of the excellent support staff we have to collect this information. I think the approach is offloading some of that to really allow for that high-level, impactful discussion with the urologist to, to take place rather than some of this data collection, which is critically important, but it may be better offloaded to other folks. Fair. So, you know, whether that's coming in in a pre-visit review of systems or a questionnaire, you know, Christian, what are going to be at least kind of the, the bare bones things in your opinion? Maybe I'll just throw out, have you smoked? Yes, no. Are you a current smoker, a former smoker, if former? how long, and how many packs per day? Those are kind of the first things that kind of pop into my head. Well, those are already quite a lot of questions. And if you really want to wait for the answers, this probably takes one or two minutes. So I think you really have to be picky what you ask, because otherwise you run out of time. And I think time is often the issue. I mean, imagine in a world where you have like one hour for every patient, then you know the whole family history, what he did during his last holidays, and also in smoking. I think we really have to focus and I just ask, are you a smoker? Yes, no. If it's a no, it's a no. If it is a yes, then the question is whether you want to go on with those five A's. So uh, Rich and I, we just published something in European Neurology where we described this. And if you ask the five A's, refer to a smoking cessation hotline or within your institution. But I'm not sure whether the five A's are really important in every situation. I think especially preoperatively, very often this model with the five A's, my hypothesis is that you can actually skip it and each time really go for a smoke cessation recommendation. Because if he's not feeling ready, I mean, this is always difficult. I would just go, this is very important now. And I think it's, if you say it as a surgeon, my impression is they really, I mean, they often stop sometimes just after two minutes phone call, we got to see us next week. We got to discuss your surgery or your smoker. Yes, no. Okay, on the next week, you're going to stop. So I think it's pretty effective. It really works. Yeah, I, I, I agree entirely. And, you know, some of the work I've done with Mark Bierlin at UNC, who, who's been an excellent partner in this, and, and certainly uh, 
you know, the UCLA group, as well as John Gore, Jeff Bassett, Chris Seigel, all, all of these guys, you know, they did some excellent work looking at the impact of not only the diagnosis of bladder cancer, but also the advice from the urologist. And I agree with Christian entirely that, you know, this is out of necessity and because it may work, it, it's almost like an expedited five A's where you can use this diagnosis and the upcoming surgeries really as the teachable moment and the driving force behind getting someone to, you know, have a quit date in the next, you know, one, two, three weeks or something like that. And, you know, I know there's been some great work done on kind of the states of readiness and stuff like that, but, you know, I, I do agree really that this is an imperative and the urologist words really have carry weight. It's the most impactful piece of advice that patients get is from their urologist at the time of bladder cancer diagnosis. So I think we should start using it and really leveraging it. So I have a couple of questions. So for our listenership, I've read the piece that you guys put out in European urology. I think it's really nice and actually extremely practical. What are the five A's? Not to put you on the spot. So ask, that's the first one, right? We yep, kind of talked yep. a bit about that. Uh, you know, I did my homework. It's the advice. I think you should really, um, I mean, then you can say why they should start. And I think, I mean, we are your oncologists, so we have, I think, a pretty long list why they should stop. And the question is always whether they are willing to stop. But this is, I think, what I said before. I'm not sure why this is so important. If you have a very good reason, you can say it's time now. The next questions are assist in the range. And I think the assist is uh, that you give them a leaflet. So this would be, I mean, just have a flyer at hand or anything to give them. And then the range. So we have, I mean, a smoke cessation clinic. It is pretty easy for me just to range. So it takes like five seconds. And those are the five A's. But I think in the end, it's just ask them if they're a smoker, really put everything in there. I think five A's makes it sometimes a bit more complicated than it is. You know, I think it's important though. I mean, I'm kind of myopic when it comes to smoking as a risk factor for bladder cancer and kidney cancer, but actually the impact on so many facets of life, right? I mean, erectile dysfunction, which is squarely in our wheelhouse and other conditions that we may not think about as being associated with smoking are real. And, you know, I think if you say in a non-threatening, non-harmful way that we know that smoking is the biggest risk factor for bladder cancer, it's a risk factor for recurrence, progression, but it can also impact all of these other aspects of your life and your overall longevity, not to mention perioperative complications, which we'll talk about here, of course, in some detail, that that 30-second smoking spiel could be quite impactful. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. And, and I think we should use all of those things in our armamentarium. You know, I, I uh, had a mentor, Bob Brannigan at Northwestern, who would really use the diagnosis of erectile dysfunction or infertility as a way of leveraging someone towards more healthy uh, lifestyle changes. So although we're oncologists, I think, especially for younger men that, that still have good function, Using that is another good reason too, especially outside of the bladder cancer world where there's probably not a ton of great data about some of the direct disease specific benefits of smoking cessation. But to say to someone with prostate cancer on active surveillance, you know, like quitting smoking now is going to preserve your erectile function better than anything I can possibly give you long term. And this active surveillance prostate cancer is not something that's going to kill you, but smoking is, you know, I think really you know, throwing the kitchen sink at people and not shaming them or anything like that, of course, but using it as an opportunity to educate and really 
lead them to make those behavior changes based on the understanding that, you know, this is truly going to be more impactful than anything I can offer them. Totally agree. I mean, you know, we have so many malignancies, thankfully, that are so highly curable and non-life-threatening. Stage one testis cancer, small renal massive, active surveillance. They are cancer diagnoses, and I think they can lead to a kind of recalibration of how I'm living my life, diet, exercise, nutrition, smoking, and a lost opportunity if we don't intervene. So Christian, if you come across a patient who's a current smoker, how do you advise them? So for current smoker, a chronic condition would be highlighting the chronic benefits. Like it's very important that you stop now because being in 10 years from now, probably you will have problems with your erectile dysfunction or you will have problems with your legs. Wound healing is an issue. And um, really think about your smoking behavior. So that would be a bit less imperative because maybe I see him again, but I f for sure will mention it in my letter that the GP may follow up on this. But if I'm in charge and I'm scheduling the, pati scheduling the patient for intervention, I'm really strong with my advice. And I say, this is like your life-changing decision you're going to make now. I take care of the, any complications that occur, but you're responsible. And if you want to go home, leave early, then you really have to stop. And then I mentioned the oncological benefits and as we said before, complications. And patients often are not aware of this. And also when you talk about skin and scar tissue, then everyone is really interested. I don't know why, but the skin tissue and scars is important for patients. Probably for us, it's not that important, but even the eight-year-old patients sometimes, the skin is better without smoking, for sure I'm gonna stop. So I'm really have a very strong advice in the pre-op setting. Yeah, I think the pre-op setting is, you know, one of those ones where we can really have an impact. This isn't some theoretical benefit of not dying, you know, six months earlier if you continue to smoke. This is like, hey, you're about to receive an operation in three weeks and you can do something that directly gives you some power. You know, you're a cancer patient. Things are being done to you. Things are being told to you. But this is something that you can actually control. So... Rich, you might just dig in a little bit more into like, what are the effects of current smoking status on perioperative outcomes? Yeah. You know, I, I use that as a lever for sure. And I tell people there's a lot of different ways you can look at it. And by quitting ahead of anything, you know, at that initial diagnosis, there's really three different things you can probably affect. Number one, especially for people with bladder cancer is the anesthetic risk. You know, I think from a cardiopulmonary perspective, there's good data out there that shows even quitting as close as two weeks ahead of any sort of surgical procedure reduces the risk of pretty significant perioperative complications from both a cardiopulmonary perspective and then, as Krishna was alluding to, certainly even a wound healing perspective. And I think that that's like a tangible thing to patients that, you know, if you tell them that they have a lower risk of stroke or heart attack and, you know, they're not going to have a wound infection, I think that that's something that they can feel acutely threatened by, whereas Sometimes this cancer diagnosis is a bit abstract. The other thing are, are treatment outcomes. Bladder cancer certainly has the best data showing the effect on continued smoking and outcomes, but there's been studies that have shown benefits in response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy, benefits in response to intravesical therapy. There's certainly some data that says that the recurrence risk or, or progression risk may be attenuated by someone's smoking history and someone's continued smoking as well. So. You know, I think that's the second part of it. And the third part of it is health-related quality of life. And, and this is something that 
I'm starting to work more on here at Memorial because we have some great data that were collected in several studies by Helena Ferberg and, and Bernie Wachner. But just going through everything that people are going through from a cancer perspective, I have the hypothesis that people who have stopped smoking actually have better health-related quality of life. Now, I, I think the, the balancing outcome there, too, is that sometimes people use smoking as a crutch and smoking as a, as a way of dealing with some of these stresses. And I think that's the importance of getting people linked up with some of these other evidence-based treatments that help curb those cravings, help curb some of the psychological implications of quitting smoking and, and using the nicotine replacement therapy and getting them to someone who is potentially familiar or feels comfortable prescribing Chantix or any of the other FDA-approved medications. I think that's really invaluable. And I'll tell you why, in my opinion, because for many patients, I feel like who have smoked, especially for a long time, they feel like it's too late. What's the point to quitting now? You know, I've already kind of I've got the cancer, maybe I have some like COPD, you know, this, this ship has sailed and you're kind of at smoke them if you got them phase of life, but two weeks decreasing the risk of X, Y, and Z. I think that kind of, again, empowers the patient. So really, really appreciate that. Do you all actually prescribe anything? Do you recommend Chantex? We're prescribed Chantex or even things like nicotine patches or gums, or, or is that something you generally want to partner up with somebody who's got a bit more expertise? Well, I think it's a bit of a deficiency actually in our training as urologists, because even though we manage a pretty significant burden of smoking related diseases, even outside of urologic oncology, you know, all the stuff we mentioned already, you know, I, I didn't get any training in it. Certainly I have, you know, I had virtually no experience in prescribing the FDA-approved prescription medications, you know, we certainly kind of flippantly told people to go get over-the-counter nicotine replacement therapy, but even that can probably be done better because combining long-term and short-acting nicotine replacement therapy is better than just telling someone to go get gum or something like that. So I think early on, I mean, I'm not even at the stage where I'm terribly comfortable prescribing these FDA medications, but fortunately, I'm at a place where we have an embarrassment of riches and resources when it comes to real expertise in this. And I think that's part of what needs to be figured out and, you know, part of what Christian's trial will hopefully help determine. And, and a lot of the work I'm proposing in grants and stuff at the moment is to figure out where this all fits in. Like, is it that the urologist is best suited to do that brief intervention where you look the person in the eye, you tell them all the benefits, you educate them about, you know, the risks of continuing to smoking, and then you do a very good handoff to someone who's got expertise in not only the medications, but the counseling, because not only is that initial quit period important, but some of the, the sustainment of all of this is important too. And having someone plugged in and having the support to continue that even after that first quit attempt, whether it was successful or not, is critical. Or is it better that these things come from the urologist? And obviously there's a lot of barriers to doing that given our deficiencies in training and even knowledge of the whole process. But that's why I think there's so much work to be done in this space. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we're, we're behind as urologists, the thoracic surgeons and the ENT docs, and certainly the cardiologists, the folks that manage a lot of these other tobacco-related diseases, I think have been doing this and probably doing it better for a long time now. So it's, it's really time that we get some skin in the game and, and we start to really help our patients do something that is so critically important. You know, it reminds me of being an intern on plastic surgery and the plastic surgeons wouldn't do operations if the patients were, were smoking. 
And okay, maybe cancer, it's a bit different. Certain cancers is probably not that different, but you know, it's a thought that, hey, listen, we're not gonna do X, Y, and Z until you can demonstrate that, you, that you've quit smoking for a bit of time. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think people need to help themselves, but we also need to help them help themselves. You know, I, I don't think you can put the burden entirely on the patient. Certainly in an elective cases like that, it's probably a huge motivating factor in, in plastic surgery and stuff. But part of the issue is that people not quitting smoking is, is multifactorial. But I think, you know, we, we can certainly do better from, from our factor and then the system level as well. Christian, what, what are you comfortable with? You know, you, you take your intake. I mean, I think I extract that a one minute, authentic, compelling, directed intervention from the urologist carries a lot of weight. And, you know, I read in your article that even with that alone, patients are four times more likely to quit. It's amazing. It's empowering to us as urologists that we're not just, you know, saying something for the sake of saying something. But beyond that, you know, is there much that you're doing kind of, you know, in your hands? Well, I don't really have time to prescribe the medication. Also, I didn't receive proper training. I just, you know, refer to my cardiology friends and I just tell the patient, you know, you believe in us that we can do the surgery. Now I'm going to introduce you to my friends and they're experts in uh, smoking cessation. Would you mind if I schedule an appointment? And nobody says no. It's just like, oh, okay. Yeah. I trust you. Okay. Of course. Now I have to trust you for the referral. And then it's arranged and then I think my, my friends take over and many of them, I mean, not everybody's showing up, of course, but many of them show up and then they already actually quit. So I think that's pretty efficient. If you just say you're going to arrange it, if that's okay, so they don't really have a choice somehow, but uh, they really appreciate it. And after the surgery, they really thank you. So I think 99% of patients really appreciate that you take care. Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like things like nutrition counseling, exercise counseling are less taboo than smoking counseling for whatever reason. I mean, we see in our ERS guidelines that, for instance, for cystectomy patients should see a exercise counselor and a nutrition counselor. I just don't know if it's quite as emphasized when it comes to smoking cessation. So do you all have people like at the point of care that can provide any advice? Is there anybody like a nurse or a LVN or an RN or an APP that you co-manage patients with that could, you know, maybe dig into a bit more or is it generally a separate referral, separate division, separate department? Yeah, for us at the moment, it's uh, it's a separate group. It is an order that is automatically placed through the EMR once it's documented that the patient is a current smoker. But I think that using our physician extender or, you know, non-physician clinician colleagues to do some of this is a potential avenue to get patients maybe more direct, certainly point of care treatment. And, uh, I, I think that's another one of those options that if we're trying to figure out how to implement this into our practices, that that's a, a pretty attractive avenue. Now, a lot of those folks have a lot of other competing things they need to do and you know, that would require some, some additional training for, for them as well. But I think if we're going to take this seriously, that we have to figure out what the best way of doing this is to balance that really precious amount of clinical time spent with the, with the doctor and, you know, the, the patient's time as well. So both of you all have mentioned time. I mean, obviously I would love to spend an hour with the patient and really, you know, get to know the ABCs and do a lot of things that, you know, maybe physicians 50 years ago got to do. So it's limited, obviously. 
But is there some way to, you know, at least account for the efforts being spent? Is there anything kind of in your documentation that you're doing? Are you able to bill for any amount of time spent that you're aware of? I'm actually very interested to hear how it is in Europe. Let's have Christian go first so I can compare with how poorly it is here in the U.S. Well, we have a specific time slot we can bill each time we see a patient. What is interesting that actually nurses together with doctors can bill as well. I mean, it's not a huge amount, but this is what we just figured out more recently. And that's why we have now a urological patient coach. And I mean, this is really helpful when you're scared as a stectomy because there are so many things to do if you want to do it properly, like get all the checks in your bucket list. So this person can bill as well. And I often call them again. And even if I do a telephone call, I can actually bill through that. And I think that's really helpful. And I also send a letter to the GP because I think the GP should be involved because he's taking over in the end. And GPs really appreciate actually when you're involved in non-surgical steps, because then they think you care as well. And I think, or I hope this is also good for referral practice. Yeah. So, you know, I, I do try to document what I did and my understanding of things is that there's really two levels of additional coding you can enter at the time of a consultation. One is kind of a brief intervention, and I, I think actually there's a, a time constraint on it. And then there's another that's a more in-depth intervention that I think is like greater than 10 or 15 minutes or something like that. And I have a dot phrase that when I really do sit down and, and spend the time counseling someone about the importance of this and facilitate some of those, those handoffs to the smoking cessation clinic and those experts, I do use it because uh, not only does it put it out there in the note that I spent time doing this, but I think it's also, uh, you know, very important for the, for the reimbursement. Now, when we talk about incentives, as, as Christian mentioned earlier, I think that relatively speaking, the additional compensation to the physician or to the, the medical system for doing this is, is probably very disproportionate compared to the value, but I'm guessing there are some additional dollars for the session. It has to be documented though as a separate billable service. And I think there are some additional kind of details that need to be included in the, in the dot phrase for it to, to be reimbursable. Yeah, that's good intel. And I think that, I mean, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. It does need to be a real effort. It needs to be properly documented, but there's an opportunity there. And certainly, you know, one of the things that I do, I actually learned it from Vince Ladone, is I call patients before surgery, the night before surgery, and kind of just, hey, I've reviewed everything. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that that's the best time to revisit smoking cessation the day before surgery. But, you know, if it was a couple of weeks out, it could be a nice, nice opportunity to intervene. So you both mentioned education. And I, you know, certainly wasn't trained properly on smoking cessation in the course of my medical school or, or residency or fellowship for that matter, I was kind of happy that once upon a time we arranged for our smoking cessation counselors to give a grand rounds talk. And it kind of talked a little bit about addiction, physiology, impact of smoking, quality of life outcomes, and then just kind of some fairly simple prescriptive things that we can do that aren't overly intensive. Have you all embarked on any education initiatives, either within your institution or societies? I mean, you guys are obviously both engaged in EAU, SUO, AUA. You know, these are 
great PSAs for the urologic community, I feel like. Yeah, you know, I, I think part of this starts at the very top, too. We published something in Journal of Urology fairly recently that looked at all bladder cancer guidelines, both muscle invasive, non-muscle invasive, and metastatic, uh, you know, throughout Europe, throughout the U.S., and, and certainly some of our, you know, big oncologic societies. And then we compared them to the recommendations seen in the lung cancer guidelines for smoking cessation. And we found that there, there was, you know, a disproportionate amount of mention of the importance of smoking cessation in the lung cancer guidelines. So I think if our, our societies and the groups that are putting together these really, really critical recommendations for practice and stuff, don't even mention smoking cessation in, you know, arguably one of the strongest smoking related cancers there is, you know, that, that's a failure right there. Uh, and, and then everything kind of trickles down from there. I think if, if things are really promoted as important at that level, then we can really start to expect our, our institutions, our physician groups, and then the individuals to kind of take charge of that. And I know that's kind of a, not directly answering your question, but I think it's important to highlight because this, this is something that it would seem so easy to include in our guideline statements and really drive home the importance of all of this, but it's just not universal. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, we've all been doing this long enough where we've seen certain things become trendy, fashionable, gain some momentum, and then they're part and parcel of what we do. I mean, non-opioid prescribing practices. That's something that, in my opinion, over the last, I don't know, five to seven years has been like, listen, if your first option is hydrocodone for pain, like you're really not practicing contemporary medicine. And I feel like in my opinion, it shouldn't just be trendy, but it should be, you know, at the forefront, put at the top of mind that smoking cessation is massively critical. Yeah. And, you know, we, we saw a ton of, of uh, you know, the AUA put out a white paper. We saw a ton of great proposals this year that show some of the mature work in the opioid sparing protocols and stuff like that. I know you had Dr. Davies on this podcast recently talking about all, all the work they've all been doing. And yeah, I mean, that's really it. it. It needs to be championed by some of our key opinion leaders and, and some of our societies at the very top before it's really going to be, I guess, embraced as, as important as it is. How about you, Christian? What are you guys doing across the pond to kind of raise awareness, get this at the top of mind? Yeah, I think training is actually quite critical. And probably for us now, it's difficult to understand why somebody's not doing smoking cessation. But I mean, it's pretty basic. People have to understand, also doctors have to understand the benefits. And what we now changed is that in our letters, things that we kind of miss every time, like smoking cessation or genetic counseling in urological diseases is now a must in the letter. So you can only say, yes, it has been done or not. So if this really helps that people realize this is important because each time they sign a letter, it's in there. And we started also with, you know, lab analysis in stone patients. It's like now it's really in their heads. So I think you just have to repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. And I mean, we, we are most of all a really good patient communication. So I don't think we need a communication skill course for smoking cessation, but just like drill it in there. And then I think, I hope it sticks for a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. The motivation for inviting you all on today is just to kind of hopefully get out some practical tips and tricks, educate our listenership a bit more, empower the urologist that, you know, I can improve their outcomes and I can at least do a, a pretty decent job with 
you know, something that's genuine. And, and I think that would come across to the patient. Now, Christian, you, you've worked on some, some work to actually, you know, take this to the next level. And I believe you've got a randomized trial. Would you mind tell us a little bit about that? For sure. So I searched the fellowship in the UK, which is heavily understaffed system regarding doctors. And they do actually an amazing job with advanced nurse practitioners. So patients are mainly managed by those ANPs, how they are called. And I thought when I came back to Switzerland, this is, you know, how we have to change the system because they're just amazing. They really love communication with their patients. And then I said, okay, smoke cessation with surgeons and anesthesiologists doesn't work. So this is a nurse led smoking initiation trial before surgery. Any patient who is scheduled for surgery will be found through EPIC and then will be on the screening list. A nurse going to call the patients whether he's really a smoker or not, because it's not that accurate in EPIC. And then if he's a smoker, he's invited to be in the trial. It is randomized to usual care, which is normally nobody tells them about smoking cessation could be beneficial before surgery, or it could be the adventure group where we're going to send a letter to the patient, to the GP information leaflets, and we're also going to schedule smoke cessation clinics. And then they go on with surgery and we will have a blinded assessment for complications. And then also, as Rick mentioned, quality of life, psychological well-being, uh, everything afterwards. And then we also want to measure how long the smokers will quit actually keep away from cigarette. So this would be really interesting when we have the one year follow-up as well. Because many smoking cessation trials, only like 10% of quitters actually are still off one year later. So I hope the teachable moment before surgery lasts for longer. But that's a trial. We got to enroll around 250 patients and I want to see as a primary outcome whether complications can be decreased. I think it's tremendous. I mean, I, I absolutely love it. And I think it's this type of rigorous implementation science that's that's really going to catch everybody's attention in a big way. It may not be the most glamorous bit here, the most novel technology or drug du jour imaging, et cetera, but super, super practical. What about some specifics on resources, you know, at the point of care, maybe like in your after visit summary, you've got a dot phrase, check out, I don't know, American Cancer Society or X, Y, and Z. Are there any resources that you think are, you know, particularly good? Does BCAN have any, just out of curiosity? Yeah, I think the best one is is 1-800-QUIT-NOW. And there have been situations where, you know, there's a, a phone in every room now, every consult room, where I've dialed 1-800-QUIT-NOW, put it on speaker, and walked out of the room and, and left the patient in there. And what 800-QUIT-NOW does is it links up wherever you are, it links up the person calling to the state resources. And all states are, are mandated to have these resources now. So the person will get linked up with a, a counselor who will establish follow-up, and then we'll actually mail them out nicotine replacement therapy and may even facilitate the prescription of prescription medications. So I think this is one of those resources that is probably underutilized for centers that don't have these kind of elaborate smoking cessation clinics or anything like that, because this is a free resource. And once you link the person up with, with this resource, they will continue to follow up with them and provide support and also facilitate any sort of additional behavioral counseling or anything like that. So that I think is, is the, the one that I use the most. There's plenty of websites linked to the National Cancer Institute or the American Cancer Society that provide excellent support. But 
I think 1-800-QUIT-NOW is really the best because they tend to follow up and they have the ability to send free evidence-based treatments. That's a good one. Yeah, it's obviously pretty straightforward and, and simple. I know in your article, you'd mentioned smokefree.gov as a website that may have some information that you can hand out. Do you all know, does BCAN have anything? I should know that. They had invited Mark Bierlin and I on to do one of their Lunch and Learn podcasts as well. And then uh, had me on for the Great American Smokeout in the, uh, the, the patient podcast. But as far as online resources and stuff, I'm actually not sure. It might be an obvious one that's potentially overlooked because that's clearly an amazing resource for our bladder cancer patients. So this is, you know, I think you guys have really been at the, at the forefront of the cutting edge of reinvigorating interest and emphasize the importance of smoking cessation, empowering urologists, empowering patients. What are some of the kind of key takeaways, Christian, from your perspective, you know, if you want to leave the listenership with? So I think as a urology trainee or as a consultant, every day your patients not smoking really counts. We heard previously that the day before is probably not beneficial. I think it is. There's a very nice trial that Rich and I commented recently. And if you stop at the median of a few days, just I think it was two days in a recent Danish study, you could actually improve gastrointestinal complications. So there are many stories behind smoking cessation and it's probably not beneficial, but it is actually always. So it's not that you cannot go to the toilet. If you stop smoking, actually it's better. So there's no harm for smoking cessation nearly. And so I think whatever you do, when you get up in the morning and say, I want to do something good for my patients today, think about smoking cessation because there are no harm regard compared to your other inventions that you're probably going to do, which are not always beneficial. And smoking cessation, if you just have one per day, this is my highlight. I just go home and say, oh, this was one or two smoking cessations. I think this should be one of your mini goals every day that you just say, okay, one or two smoking cessation achieved, clap. I love it. I love it. And I mean, you know, if I may, I just think that empowering patients that it's not too late. I mean, I love that every day counts. You know, we spent so much time for like two decades on partial nephrectomy and how like minutes matter and seconds matter. And, and that's that kind of dominated the literature for so long. And if the next wave is going to be, you know, every day counts and that's empowering to the patients, I can absolutely see that'd be a real source of satisfaction. What about you, Rich? Yeah. So this is coming from me as a implementation scientist now. It's that, you know, don't make this hard on yourself or on your team or anything like that. You know, I think the important critical first step is really screening and asking patients, but that doesn't have to be a chore at the point of care. I think trying to build in some of these system level things where you're getting this information from patients and then using it in an actionable way. Now, whether that's using the EMR or approaching it with, uh, you know, like a learning health system type approach where, you know, that then leads to an automatic referral to someone or even that your after visit summary for smokers then includes the 1-800-QUIT-NOW or the smokefree.gov or anything like that. I think it's time to start using our EMR to work for us and using that to help patients rather than just being a billing mechanism. But it does take some effort, but, you know, you're, you're paying upfront for a lot of potential downstream benefits. So, you know, really, uh, I guess that's the long way of saying, you know, understanding the importance of this and trying to build in some of these 
evidence-based frameworks and first and foremost, just recognizing and detecting who's a smoker in your practice, because without asking, there's, there's no way of, of intervening effectively if you're, if you have no idea if someone's a smoker or not. So I think the recognition angle is, is huge. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like time and time again, right? If you don't ask that the visit could be shorter because you didn't ask about ED or you didn't ask your kidney cancer patient about lowering your tract symptoms. If you don't ask about smoking, it's a lost opportunity. And, you know, we do complex things. We do operations, we prescribe medications. I certainly think that even a small dedicated intervention could be, could be valuable. So I've definitely, you know, learned plenty. I love the idea of like getting home at the end of the day. And, and if nothing else, you know, I maybe helped a couple of folks quit smoking. That's powerful. I love it. So, you know, thanks for your time. Thanks for the work that you're doing and look forward to seeing uh, continued efforts from you guys. Thank you so much for doing that. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.